We are in the part of the Joseph narrative that begins at chapter 39 of Genesis. So chapter 39, verse 1. And we'll recall that Yosef, that Joseph was the son of Yaakov and which wife? Rachel. Rachel, the beloved wife, Rachel. Yosef was the favorite son. Yaakov made that dangerously obvious. He gave his son a very special tunic to wear that was expensive and um, very intricately done. And uh, he was distinguished from his brothers. He's also distinguished from his brothers in that he uh, is an interpreter of dreams, which in the ancient Near East was a very serious relationship to the spirit world, to the other reality that we live in. Um, and was also, I mean, so anything like that is, is a dangerous kind of thing. It's both a, a gift, but the, a connection to that other realm is scary, right? It's, it's got its own edge to it. So that already would have been something that set Yosef apart. But add to it that Yosef is 17, he's like a teenager, and he loves to, you know, to freely give his advice and his interpretation and his understanding of things that often is not very flattering um, of his brothers and it is very um, flattering about Joseph's future and, and, what, and very rosy about what Joseph's future is going to be. Um, this does not endear him to his brothers and finally they ha- they've had it and they decide to get rid of him. They throw him in a pit and they're trying to decide what to do. That's another part of our parsha that we're not going to discuss at length today. Um, and they decide that they're not going to kill him. They're not going to leave him there. They're going to trade him. They're going to sell him into slavery uh, to a, a caravan that, that comes. And he is sold by his brothers uh, into slavery. So this... Uh, they they animals coins? coins gold you know like they well they they get wealth like material wealth and so Joseph was this spoiled coddled younger <clears throat> brother the favorite of his father um, grew up with uh, without his mother for a good part of his childhood why what happened to Rachel she died she died. died in childbirth with Benjamin so. So, you know, Yaakov not only loved Yosef as the eldest son of his favorite wife, um, but then when he loses his wife, Joseph, is, is, Joseph and Benjamin are all he has left of Rachel. So, what was Joseph when Benjamin was born? I don't know that. I don't know that. I'm sure the rabbis do the math. It's got to be somewhere. We, we could... Google it and see how old was Joseph when Benjamin was born. Um, so, in any case, um, he is sold into slavery, and now, so now, this spoiled seventeen-year-old is completely without any kind of um, safety net. Nothing. He has nothing, and he's in very dangerous circumstances. Right, the life of a slave is not guaranteed. Right? He's in very dangerous circumstances. So that's where we're going to pick up our story. Uh, we're going to pick up at 39.1. And we're going to get the description of what happens to Joseph. Um, somebody begin reading, please, at 39.1. When Joseph was taken down to Egypt, a certain Egyptian, Potiphar, a courtier of Pharaoh and his chief steward, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he stayed in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord lent success to everything he undertook, he took a liking to Joseph. He made him his personal attendant and put him in charge of his household, placing in his hands all that he owned. And from the time that the Egyptian put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed his house for Joseph's sake so that the blessing of the Lord was upon everything that he owned in the house and outside. He left all that he had in Joseph's hands, and with him there he paid attention to nothing save the food that he ate. 
Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Okay. <laughs> so that's very important. So, Joseph, hurad mitzrayma. Joseph goes down to Egypt. Always, it's about, when you're going to Egypt, it's going down. There is a descent that happens. And the rabbis and certainly the mystics of our tradition always understand anything about going down to Egypt as not only, okay, here's what happened, the narrative, but about a spiritual teaching. That this is a metaphor for a descent for Joseph. He has fallen about as far as you can fall from being a favored son to being down in Egypt and at the absolute bottom of the society in the bottom society, right? So it's always a descent spiritually down to Egypt, and he's all the way down the social ladder in terms of status as well. So then we're going to get a description of the household into which he's taken. Notice how many times the word Egyptian appears in this text about Potiphar. He's way more often called an Egyptian than he is by his name. The important thing is that he's Egyptian. This is to distinguish Joseph from where he is. He's not Egyptian. He's Hebrew. Right? So we're in a foreign, he's in a foreign place, completely other. And again, completely at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So he's taken to Egypt, to a certain Egyptian, Potiphar, who's a courtier of Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh's chief steward. So this is somebody who's important in the royal court, and he has purchased Joseph from the Ishmaelites. And now we get the introduction of yud vav into this text. yud vav is the, this is the only chapter in which God is called yud vav The rest of the story, it's Elohim, a more generic term that can mean God's little g, or God, capital G, if we're talking about the relationship with the one God of the Hebrews. Um, why why Yudhei Vafei all of a sudden here? Why, why a new name for God here? What does it signify? What, 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 what do we know about that name? The beginning of the story of the Jews being in Egypt. So something about this is more than the story of Yosef. This is now about the Jewish people and, and that Yudhei Vafei is still involved with this people. So Yudhei Vafei has been identified with Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. We're making it clear, the narration is making it clear, Yosef is part of that story. This is part of that family's story. That, that Yudhei Vafei is intimately involved with everything that's going to unfold. So Yudhei Vafei was with Yosef. And Yosef was successful. And he stays in the house of, here we get it again, his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that yud Vafe was with him, and that yud Vafe lent success to everything he undertook, he took a liking to Yosef. So Yosef's gifts and talents in the ancient world is an indication that the gods favor you. Right? The gods smile on you. And so he likes Yosef. He's, he's doing very well. In um, the ancient uh, world, in Egypt, often you would have slaves being in charge of all of the administration of your household if you were wealthy. We have a description um, from a papyrus that tells us about 80 slaves in an Egyptian household, that, and they all held posi- many of them held positions, and they held all of the positions that were executors you know, of the uh, estate. So it was not uncommon that Yosef was put in this position if he demonstrated the skills and talents uh, and the successes that, um, that would earn him that kind of position. So we don't know how we started, but, but clearly he works so well and he's so successful at what he does that he brings huge success to the house and he rises to the place of personal attendant to this officer in Pharaoh's court, who puts him in charge of his household, placing in his hands all that he owned. Joseph becomes the keeper of the estate. He holds the keys to everything. Just one person do such a big job. 
to think they would need, it would be impossible for one person to do all that. He, he, there's a team. He's, he's not doing this alone, but he's, he's the CEO, right? So he's the one who makes CEO all the decisions. The he's the CEO of the palace of Potiphar, of, these, of this rich officer's estate. It sounds like he's the steward, just as Potiphar is the steward to Pharaoh. Exactly right. Exactly right. He is to Potiphar as Potiphar is to Pharaoh. Plus, he's training. Mm-hmm. He's in training for what's going to come. He is uh, learning, <laughs> learning things he's going to need uh, for his ultimate rise. Yeah. He doesn't know that because we don't know that, do we? We don't know when we're in something that we're gaining skills that will be useful later on because we don't know what's coming. So all Yosef knows is he's working hard, right? He's keeping his head down and he's working to try to achieve and try to make the best out of the situation that he's been thrust into. But, but for the famine that brought all the Jews to Egypt looking for food, you know, this would be moved. Correct, correct. Absolutely. How soon we, after, after he was in this big shot position that there was such a terrible famine that brought so many Jews there? It, he's, about, he's about 17 right now. All of that is going to happen. He stands before <laughs> Pharaoh when he is 40, when he is 30. So that's when there are a lot of Jews that can be taken. When he's 40. That are there. Um, yes. So it's a, it's a while right. from now. It's a long time from now. So... He's, he's working for Potiphar for a long time. So he, he's gaining these skills. He's putting his head down and he's working. Now, he didn't have to, right? He was in an absolutely favored position. He's dragged by his own family to a pit where they discuss whether or not to kill him. Was so, it Reuben who, uh, I thought I'd have to mention that. <laughs> yes, Reuben. <laughs> It was Reuben, yes. Thank you, Reuben. Reuben didn't that. Correct. So, um, he, so he's, he's hearing his brothers talk about murdering him. What does that do to somebody? Right? So even though they don't actually physically damage him, they're discussing his fate, like that it's a real possibility that they will murder him. These are his brothers. But this is his family. The pit with the snakes, and maybe that would have been a blessing to die with all the stuff that was around him. <clears throat> so certainly some people might have experienced it that way. So I just don't want us to take for granted that Yosef is successful. There's something about Joseph that allows him to not only survive the fall in status, but allows him to understand that going to Potiphar's house, he has an opportunity. He's not going to be happy. I mean, of course he's not happy. He's a slave. He's lost everything. But there's something about Yosef that enables him to work, right? And to say, okay, I have to do what I can with what I've got. Ruth? Yeah, you know, you asked the previous question about how did he feel. It seems to me that there's such a lack of trust at that point in his own family, in his brothers, that he detaches from them, and then when he goes to Egypt, is able to adopt uh, the Egyptians sort of as his surrogate family. Yes. And therefore, he works really hard. Yes. So there is a detachment that enables him to enter into his new situation in a way that actually he becomes successful. I want you, would you do for me the favor of holding through the end of our story, if you can help me do that for next week, through the end of next week, what ultimately that costs? Would you, would you try to hold that somewhere? Because I'll forget. What that costs him ultimately. Because it's a very good question. It's a very interesting issue. Mm-hmm. Do you think that his special status with his father, and I don't know about his mother, but all that investment of affection and love that that they made in him was what was sustaining him plus his own rich inner life. So there clearly is something he got given yeah. or something he has that does enable him to have an inner enough strength life um, that he's able to use that 
in radically different circumstances. And I mean, I think this is the question we ask even in, you know, therapists ask this question. What is it that as some people come through horrific experiences, devastated, cynical, bitter, angry, aggressive, and what has some people come through it? Changed and deepened and matured and, right? It's, It's a really important question. Isn't there a subtext in this story that the answer to that is God was with him? There's some kind of sense through this whole thing that, however we take that word, that God was behind this. Certainly there's a subtext of there is there is the presence mm-hmm. of God. Um, bless you. Bless you. Absolutely. That's how Torah understands mm-hmm. it. Absolutely. Um, but if we look at, so and, for me as a progressive Jew... God is with everybody. Mm-hmm. So, like, how is it that some people access that in horrible circumstances mm-hmm. and draw on that to move forward, and and others don't? It's it's a it's a good it's a just a, it's just a question that that's out there. Mm-hmm. But certainly, Torah understands it that Yudai Vav has something to do with it. <laughs> um, so he becomes uh, in charge of the entire household. And from the time that the Egyptian puts him in charge of his household and all that he owns, God works, right, on Joseph's behalf, um, and everything goes well. And it's very, very successful. So Potiphar sees over time that everything he gives to Joseph succeeds. Joseph is fully capable of learning and of growing, but he's, he's absolutely capable. And so he... Excuse me. He leaves everything in Joseph's hands. And with him there, he paid attention to nothing save the food that he ate. This is a very interesting line of Torah. We do not know what it means. Uh, With him there, he paid attention to nothing save the food that he ate. Does this mean that with Joseph there, he doesn't have to worry about anything. He can just sit with his hamburger and french fries and like feel like, okay, I can relax. I can just focus on my food, Reuben. Well, it's possible that um, the people of uh, nobility and royalty had tasters to make sure that they weren't poisoned. So maybe that was the, the reference there. Okay. That, in other words, Joseph <coughs> wasn't responsible for food that he ate. He had special people who... Uh, <laughs> Okay. We know that Egyptians <clears throat> ate separately from other peoples. They considered it um, an abomination to eat with he- yes, to eat with Hebrews or Asians or other people that that were in Egypt. <laughs> Egypt was one of the wealthiest, probably probably in the area, the wealthy, wealthiest um, kingdom in the for them known world it was the most so the ruler of Egypt is the most powerful the the ruling class of Egypt um, felt completely superior both racially and religiously to other peoples and other cultures so they would not eat with them could possibly the phrase the reference about he had nothing to, to think about other than his food sort of be foretelling what's coming up where when his wife tells him these things he has, he's not occupied with anything else, so his mind can spin out of control with rumors and things like that. Okay. It's because he doesn't have anything else that he can focus on, so he can just fixate on these other things and go with it. Interesting. Here they said something of 48. This might be a playful reference to his wife, given that in verses 9 below, Joseph tells Madame Potiphar that his master has withheld nothing but me, but you. Yes, so the Midrash very understands this to mean... Mrs. Potiphar. <laughs> Personally, I don't buy it. I do not buy it. I studied verse 9 carefully, and I do not... Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see how that connection is convincing. I don't. Um, but, but it could mean Mrs. Potiphar. Um, yes, Ruth? There's a wonderful irony here that... What's the, what's the exact wording now? Say he's, he's not concerned with anything right. except he's the food. His lechem. And now you go, excuse me, without giving anything away to when he confronts his family. 
And it's food. It's not Joseph, it's Potiphar. Potiphar, (coughs) because Joseph is there, he doesn't have to worry about anything save the food in front of him. Maybe he was a foodie and he had certain things. Maybe he was a foodie. And now he can focus on his gourmet dishes. Go and play golf. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, But before we get to verse 9, there's a comment in the middle of page 239 concerning verse 6 on the food that he ate. It says, as as has been earlier pointed out, Egyptians did not eat with strangers. Thus, early commentators understood the phrase as a euphemism for life. So it's like apparently it's foreshadowing what's going to be happening a few verses later. Correct. And does that... I don't buy it. Like, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't see it. I, I didn't see. Well, you said you studied, you were referring, when you said you didn't buy it, I thought you were talking about nine. So you're saying mm-hmm. you don't the, buy the interpretation in six. So, so what, what they try to do is equate six with nine. Yeah, okay. Right. And, and then say something about because stretch, they don't eat together. And that's, and that's, stretch, that's the stretch. I, that's I, stretch. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. And again, it could be me that I'm just, yeah. uh, I, I'm missing how they go from even segregation to this bread means Mrs. Potiphar. I just don't quite get it. Sometimes when people are on vacation, they say, isn't it you know, so difficult? All I've got to worry about is what I have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. I have no other worries. So that, that makes way more sense yeah. to me in terms of what this expression might mean. But go ahead, Robert. I just read it differently. Like he, he, didn't, he had no thought other than his food. Namely, he didn't pay any attention to his wife. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. And because the next thing... You know, well, the wife. He was so busy enjoying his food. <laughs> that, that was the way I read it. And Joseph was <laughs> So he was beautiful of um, description and had a beautiful appearance. This same phrase is used of Rachel. This is exactly the same phrase. He so he looks like his mother. So he or or he got the the qualities of physical beauty from his mother. Um, and if we can put um, our kind of homophobic culture aside, um, imagine. I don't know if you can see Egyptians in your head, but they are slight. They are of slight build. You can imagine Joseph was beautiful, right? It's not what we think of as hunky, like what you know, like he's he's gorgeous, he's beautiful in a way that probably has a very um, androgynous effect on life. In other words, his beauty was one that would impact men as well as women. Do you know what I mean? Like he was he was gorgeous. He could make it as a Greek. He could make it as a Greek, exactly. Like in that world where male beauty spoke to men also in a different way than it does in our culture. Here, it's like almost this competitive kind of, if a buff, good-looking guy comes in, it sets up this thing that that was a little different, I think, in the ancient world, particularly the ancient Near East. Like Joseph had a charisma and a charm and a power that came from his physical beauty and... Whatever it is that he's got going on that allows him, right, to to live into the fact that Yudhevavhe is with him. In six, where you know maybe when it says he paid attention to nothing save the food he ate, maybe Potiphar was rather large, corpulent, <laughs> rather corpulent, and right? rather unattractive, and uh, there were there were problems between Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar here, and well, here's what, this young, beautiful, incredible whatever guy it is, comes there into is the house. Definitely trouble between <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. Definitely, there is something right because well, what do we see at the next line? Somebody read verse seven. <laughs> After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. He said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master gives no thought to anything in this house. And all that he owns, he has placed in my hands. He wields no more authority in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except yourself, since you are his wife. How then could I do this most wicked thing and sin before God? And much as she coaxed Joseph day after day, 
He did not yield to her request to lie beside her to be. All right. So after a time, so Joseph's around for a while. He's successful. He's the most powerful man in the house. Because he's in the house and because he's so important in the house, it puts him in direct and regular contact with the mistress of the house. So his very, the very thing that, that causes him to rise in status and in power to the same degree puts him in danger, right? It, it exposes him to danger. So the higher you rise in the organization, the more contact you have with the board and the president of the board and the, the, the greater the possibility you're going to antagonize somebody in a position of power. Because they want you to do the bar mitzvah on that day that you said is taken. <laughs> Just for example. <laughs> right? So, you don't mean anything. You, I don't, of course. No, no. It's just the first thing you hit in my head. So, um, all right, you, you put yourself in the position of possibly antagonizing somebody who now can jeopardize the very thing that, that, that you were right, successful at. So that's where Joseph is. He's in a very, very delicate position. As a slave... He has zero rights. None. There's no recourse. Right? If something goes down, there's no recourse for Joseph. So he's doing his job. He's going about his business. And Potiphar's wife, Vatisa Eshet Adonav et Eneha El Yosef. She, uh... She is a troublemaker of some kind. We don't know what exactly. She lifts up her eyes towards Joseph. Given that we just got told how gorgeous he is, generally the interpretation is that it's sexual. Right? She desires him. He's beautiful. And she looks at him and she desires him. But but possibly that is an that is a um English has just left my brain. Um, That's not really what she wants. I don't know what word I'm looking for. A pretext for what she really wants, which is to mess with Potiphar. You know, that it's a power. We We do not know. So, But there's lots of discussion in the commentary about is this really about, you know, sexual desire or is she really out to undermine... Potiphar. We don't know. But, it, but what, all we know is what it says, which is she lifts her eyes to Joseph and says to him, lie with me. This is not make love to me. Right? This is a command to a slave have sexual intercourse with me. A, you don't have a choice. You are a slave in my household. It's an order. This is not a request. He's being ordered to have sex with her. And this is not the language that Torah ever uses for lovemaking. Ever. This is, um, we, we saw it with Dina, right? To lay somebody. Even in, in English, mm-hmm. if you lay somebody, the connotation is not good. Like it's sexual in, in nature. It's not, they, were, they knew one another, which is what the Torah uses when it wants to talk about Intimacy is about who yada ota. He he knew her. This is not that. This is. I want you to lay me. It's, it's imperative. It's, it's an imperative. Exactly right. She doesn't try to seduce him. She does not try to seduce him <laughs> at all. She doesn't care what he is experiencing or what he thinks of her. Like right? she she doesn't try to impress him. You right. So, um, <coughs> but he refuses. Right, and on. On what grounds does he refuse her? It would do his master dirty. It would do his master dirty. It's not the right thing to do. And God. God, right. It's not just an injury to his master, but somehow there's a cosmic wrong to it. So he, he answers her in what he thinks are the descending order of her values. <laughs> right? So, your husband has given me everything. He has given everything to me. I'm as powerful in this house as he is, except as regards you. 
Because in the ancient Near East, remember, the husband owns the wife. He has proprietary rights to her sexuality and to her fertility. So Joseph is saying to her, I, will, I am in a relationship to my master that precludes me from stealing from him. Mm-hmm. Having sex with her is stealing from his master. This, he figures, she can understand. That's theft. I can't, that's a crime, that's theft, I can't do that. And he says, he's with you, he's trusted me with everything, and except for you, obviously, because he has proprietary rights over you. How then could I do something that is this raw, this bad? Right, that would be terrible of me to do, bless you. And, and now he adds, it is also, by the way, a sin. He doesn't start there. He doesn't start with, that would be a sin before God. Why not? Why not start with, if that, you know, that would be wrong of me to do to God because it's wrong. Many commentators suggest it's because he goes <coughs> to deal with her. That answer is not going to be very strong. strong. That, that's not an answer that's going to mean something to her. It's wrong. <laughs> Please. Right? Like, <laughs> we're we we're Egyptians. Like, do what? We, do we know how old she is? Or we what don't she know. looks like? We I mean, do she not. She could have been 60 years old. We do not. And rather comely. We, <laughs> homely. He like and he looks, yeah, he looks like Johnny Depp. And right? And could so have been a cougar. We situation. have no idea. We do know that I in. thinking Johnny Depp this whole time. You were not? <laughs> you were? That's who oh, yeah. we get to play him. He'll play, he'll play Joseph in the movie. That tells you too much about your guys' idea of beautiful. So. Ben Kingsley plays Potiphar in the mo- in one of the movies of Joseph, which was I thought brilliant mm-hmm. casting. Um, so, 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 what was I going to say? Uh, so we don't know how old she is. We don't know what goes on with her. Um, we know that sexual promiscuity was very much a part of slave owning cultures. I mean, we just but kind of men, know that. Not, not for this, uh, the guy's Potiphar's wife to be. Think of Greece. Think of Rome. Women slept with their slaves all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you got caught, you were in trouble. But like, think of if you think of Greece and Rome, it's like it should call you know. It's that kind of idea that like it's um, your your superiority and your you know privilege and your comfort and your whatever is most important. Remember, in the ancient world, one third of the population was free. Two-thirds of the population supported one-third. In Greece, in Rome, two-thirds of the people were slaves, supporting the comfort of that one-third. Well, I guess another way of, of seeing that the, the, uh, the sin argument would make no sense to Potiphar's wife is even with all the multiplicity of gods that they had, there was no god who would have been particularly offended <laughs> by sexual impropriety. I mean, all the gods, I mean, there were, there were ways to offend the various gods that they had, but sex mm-hmm. was never one of them. <laughs> right, unless you were a vestal virgin. But, right, like, unless you had sworn off sex as a relationship to your god, absolutely, right. there's no, sex by itself was not something that was tied to morality or to ethics in that respect. It was a private, personal injury done to a man if you had sex with his wife. wife. Right. Did I see a hand? Nora, did you have your hand up? Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a question. Yes, Linda. So, and thus sin against God, it just strikes me, why doesn't it say Adonai? And also, he talks about God as if she believes in a single God, which so he 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 does say Yudhe Bafe. He says that. So in other words, it would be as if she it was it as if she brought a Muslim slave into her house who said it would be against Allah. That's what he says to her. She recognizes that Yudhe Bafe is his God. It's not her God. Her gods don't necessarily care. He's saying to her. It's against my understanding of what's right and wrong as regards my God. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. Hmm? I'm sorry? 
Oh, does it say Elohim? Yes. Right. If so, word nine. So, oh, yes, you're right. You're right. So, sorry, my mistake. So, Elohim. So, her, so his relationship to God. He doesn't in any way suggest she has that understanding. And why in the interpretation do they choose God for Elohim instead of Adonai? Like how Adonai generally is used when we see yud heh vav heh as the name. Okay. Because yud heh vav heh can't be said... We're not allowed to say that. Right. So, so when you read it in Torah, you have to say something. You can't just go, <laughs> right, when we're chanting Torah. So, I mean, not to be funny, I'm serious. Like, you know, when you're chanting Torah, you have to, you have to say something to indicate that that's Yudhei Vav You could say Yudhei Vav but that's a little cumbersome. So instead, they choose, the rabbis chose Adonai as what word came out of your mouth when you see Yudhei Vav And they vocalized the vowels for the word Adonai those are the vowels they put under the letters yud hey vav hey, so that you know to say Adonai. Because of that, somebody tried to put the vowels to the consonants and came up with Yehovah. Because the vowels for Adonai were put under yud hey vav hey. If you try to then use those vowels and actually read it, it would be Yehovah. But it's completely not like... Not anywhere in the realm of like reality. What about Yahweh? Same thing. Same thing. Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh, that's what it is. So the W and the V were interchangeable in the ancient world. Um, They were, uh, the Vav was a W and a V. Um, Wait, I want to say one more thing about that. Sometimes in the Torah you will see Yudhe Vavhe vocalized with the vowels for Elohim. So then when you see that, we read Elohim, which is interesting. Sometimes it's Adonai Elohim. So, right. Because otherwise it's Adonai Adonai, which is a bit redundant. Department of Redundancy Department. Okay, so where are we? We All right, so, okay, so, so, 10, and much as she coaxed Joseph, what's the Hebrew word for coaxed? Verse 10, Vayahi Kidabra, which means to say something over and over and over and over again. Where do you know this from, Kidabra? What if I say it as Kadabra? Ah, Abra Kadabra. Abra Kadabra is an Aramaic incantation. Abra Kadabra is Adabra Kidabra. It is an Aramaic magical incantation. By the way, in the, in the Greek, uh, excuse me, in, in this uh, green volume, they they say uh, she was sweet talking. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> That's what it says. She would sweet talk Joseph day after day. Day after day. She tried to lure him. Veloshamaleh, but he didn't listen to her. Lishkav etzla to lie next to her. Lihiot ima to be with her. Some commentators suggest that she changed the request. You don't have to lay me. Just lay next to me and just be with me. I just want your company. I'm lonely. Potiphar pays attention to his food and his wine, but he doesn't come back to this part of the apartments, of the royal apartments, right? He, he's, she's lonely, and she wants Joseph's company. I don't know that I buy it, but, you know, um, lie next to me and be with me it can just as easily be interpreted as I think still a sexual advance but in any case she wants she wants something from him about intimacy that he's not going to give her whether it's physical or otherwise she wants it he won't give it all right 11 on one such day when he came into the house to do his work and no and no one of the people of the household was there in the house she took hold of him by his garment saying lie with me he left his garment in her hand, fled, and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she summoned her household servant and spoke to them, saying, See, he brought us, a Hebrew man, to toy with us. He came to me to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. When he heard me raise my voice and cried out, he left his garment with me and fled and ran outside. And she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Go, go on. 
She spoke to him in, his, in this manner, saying, The Hebrew slave whom, who, who you brought to us came to me to toy with me. But when I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment near me and fled and ran outside. When his master heard his wife's words, namely, Your slave did these things to me. He was enraged. So Joseph's master took him and gave him over to the prison, the place where the Pharaoh's prisoners are kept. And there he remained in the prison. Okay. So Joseph is risen, even though his circumstances were, you know, seriously dire. He has risen to a very prestigious position. Life is pretty good, as first slave anyway, until he's antagonized Mrs. Potiphar now. So she has had it with him. And so she now moves from talking to him to physical aggression. She, she just, she's the mistress of the household. He's property. She's had it. She actually goes and she grabs Joseph. Physically grabs him. And we can presume is pulling him to her. And there was nobody around. Right? She's not stupid. She knows better than to do this with anybody around. And households, wealthy households in the ancient world were crowded. Right? They were very, there's a lot of folk in there. She waits until he's alone and there's nobody around. So since nobody's there, she grabs him, she pulls him to her, and she says, lie with me. But Joseph is able to slither out of the outer cloak that they wore in ancient Egypt Um, And when you come into the house, generally you would take off that cloak. It was kind of a loose-fitting outer garment for the wealthy, only for the wealthy. The poor had only one garment, and they they slept with it. It was their cover. It was their umbrella. Like, it was everything. But the wealthy had a cloak that they only kind of wore out and about, and then they took it out when they got to the house. So he's wearing this. he, He slides out of it to get away from her. And he flees from her hand and leaving the garment in her hand. Vayanas, um, he fled, and he goes hachuta. He he walks outside. The rabbis want to see this as um, one thing is he fled from her, but then he starts walking normally, right? That's why there's two words here used. He gets he runs from her, but then as soon as he he gets outside, he starts like kind of walking normally, just in case somebody were to see him. Uh, Rabbi, yes, sir. Uh, I don't understand the, the wording here. Maybe I'm missing something. He brought us a Hebrew man to... Oh, okay, we're, get, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So now he has slithered out of his outer garment. She's standing there. What does she assume he's gonna do now? Go tell him. Go tell who? Potiphar. Potiphar. What is he gonna go tell Potiphar? That his wife has crossed the line. Mm-hmm. That she crossed the line. That she was engaged in sexual impropriety that he refused to engage in. What would that mean for her? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing. So she's standing there. She's now in serious danger. She has no idea what Joseph's going to do, but she had better cover her butt. So what does she do? She blames blames her husband. She starts screaming. She starts hollering, right? She called out to her servants. She starts screaming. So what's Joseph wearing? So he's he's (laughs) wearing the cloak that you would take off when you come home. The the outer cloak. You know, his coat. So what she took from him was Was his outer outer garment. And now she knows she's in trouble. She starts screaming. And calls the servants and says, look. Right? So here we're going to get this again. Look. And this is over and over and over again. When the brothers bring the coat of Yosef to Yaakov, what do they say to him? Look. Look. Whose coat is this? And Yaakov is misled. By looking at the garment, Yaakov believes something that is not true, that Joseph has died, or he's been torn apart by beasts, right? Again, here's the garment, look, right? And what they see in relationship to the garment, once again, is going to have them believe something that is not true. 
parenthetically, right before this, we get the incident with Tamar and Judah. Yeah. In her case, the garments that she uses are to disguise her so that Judah believes something that's not true, that she's a cultic prostitute, um, in order for her to serve the truth and in order to have a child who becomes the ancestor of David, who becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. So in Tamar's case, which is right between the cloak with Jacob and Joseph and this garment being deceptive, in the middle is Tamar, who also uses a cloak for deception, but for good and true and right purpose. And then she keeps... Oh, yeah. The cord. She keeps the cord oh, yeah. to identify him. And then does Which ostensibly is happening here. That's right. All right. So... La, 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 la. Well, I still don't see... Oh, here we go, here we go, here we go. So she calls out to them and she says, Look, he brought us this Hebrew. <laughs> Who brought us? Who's he? Potiphar. 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 She's blaming Potiphar. Look at look at what my husband did. Look at the position he put me in. He brought that filthy Hebrew, right, into our house, y'all. He put us all at risk, y'all. He brought him into our house. We are in this together. He insulted all of us. He put all of us in a terrible position. Letzachek banu. He put him in this house. Letzachek banu. What is letzachek? To play. To play. What does that mean? But can it also mean it says here to mock or insult us? We saw this with Yitzchak. Why does Sarah banish Yishmael? He sees him mitzacheking. With Yitzchak, mocking, taunting. Well, the word they use here is toying with him. Toying. Teasing. Teasing. Making fun of, insulting. But could it be teasing? Dallying. Dallying. So that clearly has a certain connotation. Dallying has, I think, a sexual connotation. Letzachek can have a sexual connotation. This is why some commentators read back into the Isaac story that what Sarah sees is an inappropriate kind of intimacy between Yishmael and Yitzchak. He's, he's mitzacheking with Yitzchak. So, um, because here it seems to have a sexual connotation. But it might not. Maybe she's just saying, that Potiphar, y'all, brought that Hebrew into our house to insult, so he can insult us with his high and mighty status that he's going to, you know, tease us, he's going to, right? So she's allying herself with the household servants. And he came to lie with me. Now she's clear, right? That he wants to lie with her. But I screamed loud. I, I, I called out. She knew nobody was around. In the ancient world, the scream was what rendered a woman innocent and made the charge rape instead of adultery. Her scream is everything. Her scream is the evidence that she was being raped. So she's really smart. She's really, really smart. She gets, she says y'all, right? This is about us, what he's, Potiphar has done to us. And she says, and I screamed, knowing there was nobody to hear it. So, um, when I started screaming, she says, here's the proof that I was screaming, he ran away. He took off his coat and ran away, because I was screaming. And he got away and he fled. So she kept the garment until Potiphar comes home. We don't know what that length of time was between Joseph leaving and Potiphar coming home. Very possibly what has happened in the intervening time. What what has Joseph likely done? Well, he ran out of the street from what I understand. And what is he going to do? You're Joseph. What would you do? You would run run away. You'd go find Potiphar. Unless you need time to just sort of... Maybe you need time to get yourself together, but most likely... You better go to Potiphar first. He knows something 
Joseph knows something's going to happen. He has just refused and had to flee from Mrs. Potiphar. He knows Mrs. Potiphar is going to have a story to tell. And he, I just can't imagine he wouldn't go to Potiphar and say, you have to understand what happened and fall on his face and grovel right before his master. If that's the case, let's assume Joseph has gone to Potiphar. What is Potiphar thinking? He's believing him. He might believe Joseph. He has no reason not to believe Joseph. He's proven himself. And possibly there's already been stuff between Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. Right? It's very, I just want us to hold the possibility that Potiphar believes Joseph. Well, he also knows that his wife is not particularly satisfied. <laughs> he might know that either his wife's appetite is more than he can take care of or that they are no longer intimate that way or that she has a reputation for this or that this has happened before. It's very likely that Potiphar has talked to Joseph and it's not completely going to be convinced by Mrs. Potiphar. So he comes home. That's all we know is that he comes home. She tells him the story saying, the Hebrew slave you brought into our house, right, came to me, letzachekbi, to tzachek with me. Again, again, this word that we're not sure. But when I screamed at the top of my voice, he left his garment with me and fled outside. Right? What does she leave out? She grabbed him. She, she certainly left out that she grabbed him. And she started the whole thing. <laughs> she started the whole thing. But she says to her servants, what? Get he me. wanted to tzachek with me and to lie with me. Oh. She doesn't use the word to lie with me here. She's very clever. If she says he tried to rape me, he would have been killed. There was no choice. You attack the wife of the master. Again, it's not about protecting her. It's that he, the slave, would have insulted the master and stolen from the, or attempted to steal from the master in a way that would have demanded his instant execution. Or cuckolded. He would have been cuckolded. And we know what happens, right, to to that. So with that, right, that's the worst you can do to a, a, a man with property and wealth and a reputation and status to protect. Right? A cuckold is the worst thing you can be. So she could have had him. Very nice. She could have had him executed, and she didn't. Why? She wanted another, time. She wanted another shot. Because she did like him. Because she, she did like him. She really wanted him close. She really did want to be. She is lonely. She really wanted him to lie next to her and talk to her about the movie that was on last night and to watch The Walking Dead, you know, mid-season finale. And right, so she is. She or is. She just knew that she was in the wrong and she didn't want somebody's death on her hands. For some reason, she decides to spare Joseph's life. Reuben is not convinced it's because she has anything good going on. Why does she spare his life? Uh, I I believe what you're saying. I don't think she had a a, a decent bone in her body. (laughs) She wants another chance? Yeah. Maybe if he has some time to sit and cool his heels in the dungeon... I can talk Mr. Potiphar into letting him come back upstairs, and now he might sing a slightly different tune when I wanted Tzachik with him. Yeah, because, you know, I, I brought him to the brink, and I... Uh, I brought him to the brink, and I didn't do it, but I can. Also, as evidence that she has it in for her husband, conniving, she just said God. that Joseph came on to me, but she phrased it in such a way that it was the, whole thing, the husband's fault to begin with that, she, that he brought him. Well, she clearly, she, she clearly goes there. Right? So when Potiphar hears the story that his wife told him, thus and so your slave did to me, he was furious. Now, what's interesting is Potiphar still could have had him executed. Mm -hmm. If he's so furious, why doesn't he have him executed? He needs him. He likes him too. He needs him. He likes him. And possibly, who is Potiphar possibly furious with? His wife. Mrs. Potiphar. Like, this is the third servant I've had to dismiss 
because you can't keep your, you know, hands off them. Or, like, really? 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 <laughs> really? The business is doing really well. This guy is really successful. Like, really? Exactly. Like, really? There's a slave market. I'll give you money. Go buy. Really? This guy? He, he's got to start all over with somebody else? He's furious. Somehow I would also think that if, if he, if she had used the other word, or there were a series of, of slaves being killed over this prior rape in her case, then it would have changed the dynamic in the house greatly. You wouldn't really want to be a slave, in, especially if you knew that there was a series of Slaves being killed before you. Before you. Yeah. yeah. Not that they would have a choice. You wouldn't necessarily want to be the head of the. Right. Yeah. So maybe Pope Francis, you're ruining our reputation among the slaves. Yeah. We're not going to get anybody good. <laughs> no. Nobody's going to even try. They're going to want to stay in the kitchen right. scrubbing pots because right. they're terrified of you exactly. finding them attractive. Right. And um, in the commentary, they said that um, the word. <laughs> means either eunuch or an official. Yeah. And whether Potiphar was a eunuch, possibly a eunuch, and I don't know if there's been any other interpretation or discussion on that, but that's here in this commentary. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. That, that would certainly explain a lot. Um, so what well, we know they don't they is that he is thrown into the Beit HaSohar that is on the grounds of Potiphar's house. He is thrown into Beit HaSohar, which is um, prison Prison didn't exist in the ancient Near East. You didn't, you didn't put someone in prison. There isn't, you killed them. You, you, you render judgment. Either they lose a limb or they lose $10 or, you know, whatever, or they have to marry the girl or they have to give their son to the next guy's, you know, whatever, to work the fields for a while. You took care of it. You, you made a ruling and what the judge said went and then it was carried out, whatever that was, to make restitution or to, or to punish somebody. You, don't, you didn't go to prison. You didn't jail someone. In Egypt, there was a penal system where you held people um, either awaiting trial or a place you put them in order to exact punishment for something that they'd done. Such is the Beit Sohar, probably. If it's on the property, it is a uh, jail for officers, right? So this is a place where people who have displeased, that's why we get Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker, right? These are the top people in the palace. The The cupbearer is the closest person to Pharaoh. They have access to Pharaoh. They have Pharaoh's ear all the time. They are the person Pharaoh trusts. If Pharaoh takes the cup from that person and drinks, he trusts he's not being poisoned. Remember Egypt? Remember how people got to be Pharaoh? Not a lot of Pharaohs died in office, like at an old age, right? Passing on their scepter to their son. They were murdered. So Pharaoh, the cupbearer would have been the, one of the highest levels of officer in Pharaoh's court. That's where Joseph is, right? He's not in the, you know, downtown pen, you know, like in, in the gritty, awful street mob kind of prison. He is in a fairly nice facility. Like, what do you call it? Minimum security, Minimum security. prison, like for white collar crimes. Madoff. That, he's, he's with Bernie Madoff, <laughs> right? So that's where he is. That already tells us something. Potiphar could have had things go very differently for Joseph. He puts him in a minimum security prison, in a white-collar prison. It's prison nonetheless. Once again, Joseph has fallen completely from a pretty nice, cushy status to absolutely the bottom of the bottom again. Can I go back to the very beginning this please do because you talk about this descent yes and how and how joseph sort of hits rock bottom when he's found by when he's bought by potiphar yes well has he in fact hit rock bottom at that point because uh it's possible that the the ishmaelites who are selling you know maybe they went to potiphar first because well, he's a, he's a rich guy, so let's get what we can for this 
potential slave. And you know, and if he says no, then we'll then we'll go to this person and so on and so on. Potiphar didn't have to buy him. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that Potiphar bought him sort of puts him in a higher status than he would have been had he been had he been sold to the tenth person on the list. I mean Joseph would have descended even further mm-hmm. had he become, say, uh, the slave to a a pit boss on the pyramids. So, so there's lots of ways to see it. When we are at our bottom, do we say, I can't believe how bad this is. I've lost everything. They hate me. My own father isn't coming to look for me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Or do we say... It could could have been been worse. It could have been worse. So let's go to Peter Pitsula on page 212 of the handout I just gave you. Who's going to explore this very question? In my own life, second paragraph on page 212 of this handout, of the handout. In my own life, such moments have come in the veils of depression, talking about his being in the pit, right? In the dry well, the depths, right? Economic and emotional, which left me stripped of my sense of dignity and hope. Having, and so he goes through some of those situations for him. Go down to the next paragraph. But his fortunes turn. Joseph the slave is elevated to the position of major domo in the house of Potiphar, an Egyptian dignitary. He enjoys a brief period of ease, comfort, and respect. But no sooner is he up than he is cast down again. Hardly has he attained his position than Potiphar's wife makes a pass. Blah, 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 blah. A second season of ashes begins for him. A second time we hear how he prospers. God was with Joseph, we read, and brought him to favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Again, Joseph rises from the depths and becomes second in command. And whatever Joseph did, God made succeed. He's going to have this happen a third time. So drop down to the very bottom of the page. In psychodramas, Peter Pitzula does psychodrama with people around, around the Bible stories um, that, he, that he's done um, from the season when he, when he was dealing with depression and, and talking about that season in Joseph's life. Men and women have presented him pondering essential questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Does my life have meaning? These are the ultimate and unanswerable riddles of the soul in its lonely cell. Time is its oppressor. Time is its teacher. Doing time, serving time, as the vernacular calls incarceration, a man may go mad or reach a hermit's wisdom. Those players have imagined Joseph as another wrestler. Didn't we talk about a wrestler recently? Beset by voices of self-doubt, self-pity, resentment, and resignation. In our groups, we have sought to discover what story he tells himself by which to maintain his poise and spirit among his disasters, right? So one of those might be, it could have been worse, right? Is this, this is something sometimes we tell ourselves when we're in that place, right? It could have been worse. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. What does he do to stave off despair? No God has ever addressed him, made a direct covenant with him, or promised him a redeeming future. No revelation upholds him, nor can he summon an angel to grapple with him and give him his name. His wounds are inward and concealed. He lacks a blessing. So far, his dreams have led him to a dungeon. In the end, we see him as a man who remembers his dreams and puts his trust in them. He finds some center deep within his bewilderment. There he finds a kind of peace. Like Joseph... We reach for what sustains us through our various imprisonments, what restores us from our derelictions. We cannot name it precisely, but we share the experience of it in our group. And I would say that's what we do here. We bear witness together to something intangible, sensed dimly at the time, recognized more clearly in retrospect that we kept faith with. We acknowledge that what preserved us was a power beyond our personal will, indeed, a kind of hidden internal God. Who, who is the writer of this? I'm, I so apologize. I should always write the author on the page. Yeah, it is, you do. I, do I? Peter Pitzela, P-I-T-Z-E-L-E, is his last name. 
The book is called Our Father's Wells. It's here on you know, the top left corner. Our Father's Wells. He's exploring the masculine dimension of male's relationship to the patriarchal narrative and stories, father-son you know, kind of, of relationship. And he works with people uh, in groups to do bibliodrama and explore these stories. Our Father's Wells or Wells? Wells. It's on the top left corner of your page. Um, before you leave, I'm going to give you Arthur Waskow, um, who has a lovely uh, way of looking at the story. But um, for me, Peter Pitzel really talks about those times we descend, those times that everything is turned over, upside down. Our, our, our own understanding of, of things is turned on its head, and, and we feel it, there's a time of darkness, a time of little hope. Um, so for us as a community, we've just come through a time of a reversal for us of it's not an up it's been it's been a low time for us as we have mourned the death of our beloved rabbi and so we're going to close our Torah study this morning this first Torah study after her death a week ago today we're going to close with this poem written by our own Blanche Rosloff an ode to Rabbi Cheryl Luer. Blanche, would you read it for us? Yeah. An ode to Rabbi Cheryl Luer. Surrounded by sunlight, reflected through six pointed stars at Kahalath Israel, we are immersed in lavender, aqua, and blue light. Rabbi Cheryl Luer, our teacher, our friend, leads us through a meticulous maze of holy writ, of astonishing myth. Time bends as we turn each corner to examine our past, our present. Each question is valued, taking us further into the core of our common history, our spirituality. We make our way into an inner space free of ego, where glowing fireflies help us decipher our innermost truths. Rabbi Cheryl's teaching have enriched our days. In a rush of understanding, our minds are in action. With a delicious clarity, we speak out to entangle our own riddles and those of others. Amen. Beautiful. Very beautiful. Thank you. May our study together continue to do justice to Blanche, what you have so beautifully articulated is at the heart of each and every one of our study sessions together.